electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, the fear of rising rates and the immediate threat of Russia invading Ukraine. What does this double whammy mean for the markets, and where can you find safety in all this uncertainty? We'll debate that with our investment committee today. Jenny Harrington, Degas Wright, Steve Weiss, and Joe Terranova. Let's get a check on the markets right now. The Dow and the S&P 500 down for a third day. The Nasdaq swing between gains and losses right now. Gaining six-tenths of a percent, S&P 500 almost at the flat line, and the Dow is down by four-tenths of a percent. Ten-year yield, we're above 2%. Once again, 2021%. Joe Terranova, what do you make of all the action that we've seen in the past few days? Well, I think the action of the last couple of days is, is trying to price in this new dynamic, which is a potential conflict that would uh, occur in, in Europe. And it seems as though markets were beginning to grow comfortable that they had priced in the monetary policy effect uh, on asset prices. So you've got this new dynamic. It's creating a very difficult environment for traders. Volatility remains evident. I struggle to find anyone that's really making significant amounts of money here from the trading perspective. From the investment perspective, Melissa, I think ultimately you are in an area of the market where you'll be okay stepping out, assuming risk and buying with a vision on where markets are going to be over the next 12 months. Consumer remains very strong. And let's not forget, 70% of the S&P 500 has now reported profit margins have actually expanded further into record territory less than 13%. So that gives me confidence on the long-term perspective that you're not going to get hurt as it relates to price too poorly stepping in here. Jenny, what's the uh, biggest immediate threat to the markets in your view? The markets seem to be sending some kind of some confusing messages, if you will. I mean, the 10-year te- note being above 2% indicates that investors are releasing their reach for bonds that we saw happen on Friday. Oil equities are giving up the big gains that we saw on Friday, for instance. And yet we do have technology trying to make a go of it here. I think the real threat is interest rates, though, because those if interest rates really start to climb, that's a long term problem for investors. And that has real um, and maybe maybe problem is too strong a word, but it's a long term challenge or it's a long term consideration for investors. And it has impacts on how you value companies, how you do your work as a portfolio manager, how you make your investment decisions. And they could sustain for like a year, two years, three years. Last week, I was thinking about, you know, when we saw the CPI number come out at 7.5%, I was thinking to myself, like, that didn't bother me that much. 
right? It was, it could have been a little high, it could have been a little low. What we're seeing right now doesn't matter. But I think once we start to see what CPI really looks like, is it really going to sustain at 4%, 3.5%, 3%? Like, that's when it's really going to start to matter. And that's what I'm actually worrying about. And when we're making investment decisions, this is what's being factored in. What's going on with Russia and Ukraine is terrible from a global geopolitical humanities standpoint. But from a market perspective and from an investment perspective, that's not weighing into our decisions. Right now, that's short-term noise. That's what I wake up and say, ooh, futures are down. Oh, futures rallied. Why? Because there's that. But that's short-term. That's finite with respect to investment decision-making. The interest rates, that's where things start to get challenging. Although Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley, who, granted, has been a long-time bear at this point, uh, Degas, mm-hmm. writes that war materially, materially increases the odds of a polar vortex for the economy and earnings. He sees nothing good, obviously, coming out of uh, an attack or invasion of Ukraine, but a more uh, a bigger impact than what a lot of market watchers are saying would have on our economy, Degas. Well, Melissa, you know, I in, uh, agree with Jenny, because ultimately, if you look at when Russia attacked, invaded Crimea in 2014. There was very low impact to the uh, U.S. market. Also, even today, uh, uh, Russia has very low impact on our markets. Uh, There could be, if something does happen in Ukraine, there could be an impact on the flow of oil and uh, energy in that part of the world, particularly it may impact Germany. So we see very little impact of the Russia-Ukraine. And once again, we have to then look at what's the real driver here, and that's inflation. And what we're you know, looking at is that something that we probably haven't talked about in a long time, is really looking at the equity duration, which is the impact of stock returns uh, that are impacted by the interest rates. So we want to start looking at that equity duration, start looking at the company's cash flows, how the discount rates impact those cash flows, and ultimately the growth of those companies. So we're seeing that those long duration stocks, stocks that have cash flow well into the future, are the ones that are being most impacted by increasing interest rates. So you want to start looking at those shorter term duration stocks to be able to really be very selective in your putting together your portfolio construction. Why is not these two things at some point intersect? I mean, Degas had mentioned rising oil prices. I mean, oil prices don't rise just in one part of the world and not in another. I mean, that's why we saw WTI rise pretty sharply on Friday, too, in reaction uh, to this heightened concern uh, of an invasion of Ukraine. Um, And we're in an environment where we've already got 7.5% inflation. Obviously, rising oil prices will contribute to inflation. It seems like, I don't want to take Mike Wilson's word, but it does seem maybe like a polar vortex in terms of these problems exacerbating each other, at least in the short term. Steve? I think that we have no audio. I can answer for him. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, if we could read lips, if you can read lips, you're in luck. But uh, Steve, are you with us? I think I heard you. Now he's out. All right. Well, okay, Jenny, you answer. You you answer. Jump. It was a jump ball. So go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I was kind of joking. Steve, if you come back in, you're welcome welcome to take over. But in terms of the polar vortex, I think that's a little bit extreme. Um, There are a lot of factors out there. I think one of the interesting things is seeing and being reminded by 
by the Ukraine-Russia um, situation and seeing how fragile our energy infrastructure is globally and being reminded, you're right, Melissa, exactly, like energy prices don't move only in one part of the globe. And we're reminded of how fragile that supply chain is, how incredible it is that in the year 2022, Germany is that dependent on Russia for, for their energy supply. So I think things, will, things can change. But also, it'll be interesting to see, you know, technically speaking, right, like taps could open up. The energy um, supply could be improved if we need it to be. So I think there's more flexibility there. Um, getting onto the interest rate part, to some degree they're related, to some degree they're not. So I think the polar vortex is kind of an extreme and dramatic way to state it, and I don't, I don't think it's helpful. I think, I think these different components can move individually. Yeah, Joe, what, how do you interpret uh, the backing off in, in oil equities that we've seen in today's session? Well, well, you you know, when, when you've got uh, the, the mention of a potential positive dialogue as it relates to UK, Ukraine and Russia, you're beginning to price out a lot of the commodity bullishness that's been affected by this conflict. Understand it's not just oil, it's agriculture pricing with Ukraine being a significant exporter. It's also a lot of the metals, whether aluminum, nickel, palladium, platinum, Russia is a significant exporter there as well. So I think that's a little bit, it's a knee, knee-jerk reaction, a little bit of a reflex reaction. Uh, but what's interesting in, 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 in all of it is it does have an effect, Melissa, to your point, overall towards inflation. And I, and I really suspect what's going on here for investors in just this overall elevated volatility environment is it's unique and it's challenging because I think time ultimately might be the biggest enemy for investors. Because investors in the last 10 years, if you think about 2011, 2018, and 2020, what are we all used to? We're used to a V-shaped recovery. Anytime there's tumult in the market and there's a problem, very quickly we're able to alleviate that selling pressure and markets recover and restore themselves above previous highs. That might not be the case this time around. You might actually have right. to wait through the calendar to get through the other side. Steve Weiss, I believe, is with you. You know, Steve, when I hey. went to you and I only I had silence, I was surprised. You're never at a loss for words, um, so it had to be a technical difficulty. Here you are again. I'm here. You're here. I'm here. Yeah. And, it, and first of all, and first of all, Mel, I'd be remiss if I didn't wish you and the others a happy Valentine's Day. So, so that's where the joy is going to end, though. Uh, so look, sweet. There are some issues here. And, and, and the issues definitely are the Ukraine. And as you point out appropriately, oil and that gas are global commodities, as are agriculture. Now, what people haven't mentioned is that we have the lowest consumer confidence reading since 2011. So the fire hose opened up as people came out of their homes, they spent, they engaged services. But during that time, we've seen the cost of those go up dramatically. So even the most flush, and I'm not talking about the upper 1%, most flush consumers got to be feeling it now and there'll be issues. But let's not just talk about Ukraine and Russia. Let's focus on China as well. China had been very noisy in terms of their issues with Taiwan, and they're only taking a uh, step back now because the Olympics are going on. So Putin and Xi, they've met, and she said, hey, we're wishing all the best in Ukraine, and why don't you keep that going, because right after the Olympics are over, we're going after Taiwan. 
And that's going to be the real mother load because so much commerce goes through Taiwan, particularly technology. So to me, best case, the market risk returns in balance. And I believe that it actually trends more towards the lower in terms of the risk profile and sort of mutes, completely discounts the upper end. So why be in a rush to buy stocks? Sure, they'll be higher in a year or two years or three years, hopefully. They always are. But in the interim, you can get a much better entry point if you keep cash. As a matter of fact, if you take some profits off the table here and hold some more cash, and that's my bet. That's How much I'm cash doing. are you talking about, Steve Weiss? So I've been in between 50 and 70% cash wow. for, for a while, an extended period of time. And every time I go to buy something, I could have gotten it lower. So every time I sold something, it's gone lower. It's been a good sale. So I just don't see that ending anytime soon. Yeah, Degas, you know, I appreciate the comments about the market shrugging off past Russian skirmishes. But this is a market that's already been broken. I mean, the Nasdaq 100 has been below its every moving average, 200, 150 day moving averages for quite some time. The biggest cap tech stocks out there, the FANG stocks also breaking these trend levels. Is this a market that you can get behind or do you think like why is, you know, maybe it is time to take a look at the sidelines? Well, ultimately, what we want to do is identify those companies that will do well. Uh, in a rising interest rate environment. And we talk about pricing power of companies. You know, those companies that are putting out uh, products and services that are in high demand, uh, companies that cannot be easily replaced, and then also companies that have a very high barrier to entry for their competitors. That's where you want to focus on. And ultimately, you want to identify those companies that have good profitability at reasonable valuation. And you can still find those companies even in this market. And I think, to Steve's point, you want to be very careful in that selection process. Yeah. All right. Um, let's get more on on uh, James Bullard's interview this morning. Bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. You spoke to him earlier today. Um, he made some very interesting comments, particularly when it concerns Fed credibility, I thought. Yeah, exactly, uh, Melissa. Uh, Bullard sticking to his guns for a pretty aggressive series of rate hikes in our CNBC interview this morning, arguing that four outsized inflation reports in a row show the Fed has an awful lot of work to do and ought to get going doing it. I do think we need to front load more of uh, our planned uh, removal of accommodation than we would have previously. We've been surprised to the upside on inflation. This is a lot of inflation in the U.S. economy, 7.5 percent on the headline CPI. These are numbers that Alan Greenspan never saw. Uh, they haven't occurred in 40 years. So uh, our credibility is on the line here. Bullard agreeing with some of your panelists there, Melissa, saying the Ukraine invasion is not a big concern for the U.S. economy and supports using the balance sheet to steepen the curve if needed. And starting, by the way, the runoff in the second quarter earlier than some other colleagues, wage inflation is concerned could eventually boost consumer inflation down the road and the unemployment rate, he says, could go below 3%. Now, that upbeat economic view right there shows there's another side to him when it comes to these rate hikes that markets may not appreciate. His belief is that these aggressive rate hikes won't be particularly painful to the economy. He called them, and I quote here, cheap because they're already priced in and will impact an economy that he thinks is still going to grow above trend. And as I said, Melissa, still drive down that uh, unemployment rate. 
Curious, Steve, if here other uh, Fed speakers have commented about how they would impact a, uh, an oil or energy spike because of a Russian-Ukraine skirmish, if it, an invasion of Ukraine, and, and how that would factor into how they see the inflation numbers. No, uh, they don't talk about it that way, Melissa. Mm -hmm. What they do talk about is geopolitical uncertainty. Hmm. And that gives them pause to be quite so aggressive the way that Bullard would be because they don't know the fallout from it ultimately, Uh, especially because, you know, they're talking about kinds of sanctions that there's some concern uh, might affect the overall global banking system, depending upon what the administration decides to do here. Um, So they would be a little more cautious in terms of tightening in that regard. But you make an interesting and very valid point that in the face of higher oil prices, maybe the Fed ought to do more. Joe? Steve, why wouldn't the Fed take what the market expectation right now is, which is 50 basis points? Exactly. To me, that would almost it would almost signal a little bit of restoration in confidence that the Federal Reserve is 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 clear in what their objective is and clear in terms of kind of catching up and playing a little faster in this hurry up offense. I'm just puzzled by why they wouldn't take the 50 basis points. So. Joe, are you and your trading friends willing to sign a, uh, <laughs> um, a, a a piece of paper that says that if the Fed does 50, you will not freak out and otherwise drive the uh, 10-year, uh, two-year spread down to zero? I, I, I think the concern here with the Fed is that some members of the Fed, of course, is that they brought the market along with it a very long way. There's 1% of tightening built into the two-year, maybe even more, depending upon where it's at right now. Um, Why mess with, essentially, now, forget the inflation numbers, why mess with success when the Fed has made this pivot to being more hawkish? The market has done its bidding. Why take more here than you need to take? It's possible that 50 may be needed. But imagine uh, if if you're you're thinking that inflation is going to be coming down the second half of the year, and if inflation doesn't respond, well, hang on. I got another tool in my pocket that I could bring out. I think that's the reasoning behind it. Go steady, go slow, um, and, and give the market what it, what it asks for, but not more than what it asks for. And I think that there is some concern that the market, you know, maybe priced in 50 now, but might react in a poor way if the Fed actually does it. Didn't we see the reaction? I mean, we got a pretty good read when Bullard first made those comments about what the market reaction could be. I mean, granted, it's not, you know, when the news actually hits, if it ever hits, the, the market uh, reaction would be steep. But we had read, an Melissa. idea. We had an idea of, of how the markets would. The yeah. Fed is almost getting a, not a free pass, but, you know, it, it's out there. It's, it's in the, you know, so why not take it? Take this opportunity to, it's to do it. It's out there. It's out there. I'm not saying they won't do it. I'm not saying it's undoable, maybe with the right guidance. But I, I just would throw out questions to you, Melissa. If they did 50 now, what would you expect them to do the next month and the month after that? See, that, quick, is, that uh, was uh, the hatsiest, uh, that's the hatsiest argument. That you do 50 and then right. all of a sudden there's an expectation for 50 after that and 50 after that. And then right. what happens to the markets? Right. That seems like a strange thing to right. worry well, about. <laughs> Joe, is, Joe is promising to be chill in that regard. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess Powell should just take Joe at his word that he's not going to hit the red button, uh, which is the sell all button. If the Fed does 50 and the market will be chill. I don't know. If I was Powell, I might myself be a little more circumspect. I'll I'll go to Mr. Cash here, Steve Steve. Weiss. Uh, I mean, would you go all cash if you knew that was in the pipe? 
Uh, probably not because it wouldn't be worth paying the taxes on the uh, on the stocks I have that'll ultimately rebound. But um, I, w- I wouldn't invest on the first 50 decline, 50 pop either in rates. But Steve, I've got a question for you. You know, a lot of the inflation has been driven by the supply chain and the supply chain hasn't really loose, loosened measurably, at least according to the freight companies that I talk to, as well as CEOs of companies that are dependent on the, on the supply chain. So how much will a rate uh, will an increase in rates, whether it's 25 or 50, actually help inflation at the same time you're dealing with the spikes in energy that will have nothing to do with rate increases in terms of tamping them down if war breaks out in, uh, in Ukraine. And then again, if we've got China on the, you know, on the horizon with Taiwan, I mean, couldn't you potentially have a very, very ugly situation with, raise, with rising rates and a slowing economy? Yeah, Steve, you're making a really interesting point. Uh, 50 basis points or even 100 basis points, as far as I can tell, is not going to unload a single ship that's out there. This uh, supply chain problem is going to have to take care of itself in the way that it's going to take care of itself. Um, And I don't think that higher Fed rates, just to be clear here, the reason for the Fed's pivot is because of its view here that the inflation problem is beyond the supply chain, that it is broader. Um, I will point out, by the way, in case you guys missed it, that uh, inflation expectations did come down in the New York Fed's survey of consumer expectations. That is one important gauge that we follow. Um, And they came out pretty sharply on the three-year horizon, by the way. Why that is, I don't know, but maybe the idea that the Fed is raising rates is starting to sink into the public here, or that they see interest rates are higher is maybe something that they're seeing. I think that's wishful thinking, but it's one explanation out there. Um, You're right, and those are the reasons why there's a group of people. Look, Bullard is one guy, and the market has decided to trade on this one guy, and Bullard does not make any pretense that he's speaking for anybody but himself. He said specifically on our air this morning, he wants to convince other people, but he sort of, you know, already says that not everybody is convinced. There is a group of people, we reported on them on Friday, uh, who say, you know what, we should go slow and steady, hold back some uh, in, in, our, in our arsenal here. And if we need to in the second half of the year and the supply chain is not working itself out, inflation is continuing to accelerate, then the Federal Reserve can ratchet it up with a 50. But you guys have a point of view as well, which I don't think is wrong. Steve, nice to see you. Thank you. Steve Leisman. Pleasure. Well, for all the volatility, the S&P is sitting right about where it was six months ago. Mike Santelli is taking a closer look at whether this is just a routine transition phase or maybe the opening act of a more punishing payback, Mike. Yeah, Melissa. Well, I think everybody recognizes that over the last six weeks, we've been in this pullback, S&P down about 8%. But it has taken us back to last midsummer levels, really. First, we got up to 4,400 or so on the S&P 500. And it's actually had some you know, real world effects here. So if your complaints about the market, if you had complaints last July or August were that, well, you know what, we're up a lot in a short period of time. The market had doubled in a little over, you know, uh, a year, two years. Uh, we basically were looking at re- pretty aggressive valuations. We were too concentrated in the mega cap techs. A lot of that has been moderated. The S&P uh, price earnings multiple on a forward basis has gone from 22 down to about 19 and a half. That's a little bit of progress. We broadened out a little bit. Uh, and the question really, as, as we stress tested the market for higher yields, is whether, in fact, this is part of just a prolonged churning process. We have had 
in advance of prior initial Fed tightenings in 1994 and 2015. These choppy periods when we have basically gone nowhere on a net basis in the index in 94 is for a year. Uh, 2015, depending on how you measure it, it's more like a year and a half. Uh, and even in 2018, you had point to point, no real progress for quite a while. So I don't think that's unusual uh, to be in that situation. The question is, where are we in this cycle? The Fed's now initiating rate hikes with the unemployment rate at 4%. Usually it's not that low uh, when we get going. This has been a very unusual cycle in general. And that brings up the question of exactly how much they'd be able to achieve, whether equity markets have already traveled a little farther than normal by the time we're getting to this first rate hike. You know, seems like we maybe we would get out of this easy if the January 24th was the low uh, for this phase. And then we go off to, to see new highs. But, you know, this market surprised in the uptide several, several times in the last couple of years, Melissa. Certainly has. Mike, thanks. Mike Santoli. Joe, what are your thoughts here? Well, it's exactly what we're saying at the top of the show. I think investors have become um, somewhat complacent with the nature of these V-shaped recoveries the market's experienced since the great financial crisis. You know, to Mike's point, sometimes ultimately you are going to get a U-shaped recovery. Uh, the appearance is you're basically running on a treadmill and just in the same spot, exerting a tremendous amount of energy. And let's not forget, Melissa, it's a midterm election year. And generally, if you go back to 1962, you're going to get better performance from the midterm election to June 30th of the following year. than you're going to get from January 1st of the midterm election year to the actual occurrence of the midterm election. So I, I think ultimately it might be about marking time and really becoming more uh, of a market of stocks than looking at overall the stock market. Uh, Jenny, just quickly, your thoughts on technology as we uh, enter and go through this churning phase, if it is a churning phase. I think we need to be really careful with broad brushes. So we could say technology, we could say growth. We, I think you need to be careful. There's a huge difference right now between Cisco and um, what's a good one? I'll pick Corvo or Snowflake or, you know, um, sorry, or Zoom, there's all different technology stocks out there. This is not a market where the rising tide raises all ships. And you have to do the work and you have to dig in there and you need to find companies that have logical valuations, that have earnings growth that's achievable and reasonable ahead and have some degree of economic um, insensitivity ahead of it. So within tech, some stocks have that, some stocks don't. You can't just buy tech. Um, Joe made a really, really good point about we're so used to, we're so used to V-shaped recoveries. We're so used to short timeframes. This is different, right? We're in a different uh, time frame now. We're in a different, you know, by the dip. You just can't do the playbook that, le- that worked for the last five years. I don't think it's what's going to work for the next five years. So you have to dig in and actually look at individual companies and know what you want to own there. All right. Well, the investment committee is making some moves. And uh, Joe, you just sold two positions added to another. Tell us about it. Yeah, I didn't sell them. The machine sold them because I basically got stopped out. And that's what I do. It's it's discipline. It's risk management. Um, Software maker Adobe, unfortunately, I was stopped out of that one. Uh, And another name that I've talked a lot on the show about, I've traded it actively is AMD. So unfortunately, Melissa stopped out of both those positions. I am taking uh, the funds that were generated from the sales, and I'm redeploying them into a position that recently I've talked a lot on the show about, and that's the IWM ETF. That's small caps. What are you buying there? You're basically buying banks. You're basically uh, buying healthcare, and you know uh, you're buying real estate companies there as well. So I want that kind of exposure. And I think l- the last point on that, real quick, is what am I doing? I'm really stepping back from what's been an active trading period. 
to thinking more in terms of ownership of small caps about the next 12 months, about investing. And I think that's the right uh, mindset to have right now in this moment. Last couple of weeks was about trading. I think that's that's beginning to uh, wane away. All right. Coming up, trades and some of the day's biggest stock movers, including Moderna, which is the worst S&P stock today. Halftime's back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I'm Christina Partsnevelis, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Police in Albuquerque arrested a man suspected of stabbing 11 people on Sunday. The lone suspect is believed to have carried out the string of attacks on a BMX bike at seven different locations across the city. All of the victims are in stable condition right now. Tune into the news tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern for the latest on a separate fatal stabbing incident that happened in New York City. Free agent NFL running back Adrian Peterson was arrested Sunday at Los Angeles International Airport and booked on a domestic violence charges or on domestic violence charges over an incident involving his wife. The former MVP was later released on bail. In 2014, Peterson pleaded no contest to a misdemeanor reckless assault in an incident involving his son. Camilla, the wife of the British heir to the throne, Prince Charles, has tested positive for coronavirus and is self-isolating. The 73-year-old Charles also tested positive for COVID for a second time just last week. Ivan Reitman, the influential filmmaker behind Ghostbusters and Animal House, has died at 75 years old. Reitman's family says he died peacefully in his sleep at his home in California. Melissa, back over to you. All right. Thank you, Christina. Shares of Moderna tanking today. The other COVID vaccine makers also dropping. Meg Terrell joins us with more on this. Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, what I'm hearing is driving this is probably more of the sort of vaccine trading activity we've been seeing that corresponds with expectations that COVID is getting better. There were comments, of course, from Dr. Fauci last week in the Financial Times. We see the case numbers dropping incredibly rapidly. And also, if you look at the pace of the booster shots being given, those have come down a lot. So Jared Holt at Oppenheimer telling me that's what he thinks is really driving this. You can see Moderna down the most there. BioNTech and Novavax, though, also down more than 8 percent and Pfizer even approaching 8%. 
a 3% drop on this. So as the COVID numbers get better, often that doesn't reflect so well for these vaccine stocks, Mel. Moderna, though, does seem to have a much steeper drop than the rest, Meg. I noticed on Twitter there's a lot of chatter about um, some stock sales by Stefan Bonsell, the CEO, and also about the fact that the Twitter account doesn't exist. What are you hearing about all these things, Meg? Yeah, so the stock sales from Moderna's management have been a story for the entire pandemic. I, I reached out to Bonsell on both of these questions. He noted on the stock sales, there are all these 10B51 pre-planned sales, and he noted it's the same amount every week. So we went and we checked. 23,000 shares are sold every week uh, by Stefan Bonsell, netting about 3 to $4 million per week, at least since the beginning of this year. And it's been pretty regular throughout the pandemic. So that's not something I'm hearing from folks like Jared Holtz really worried about uh, in terms of the stock since it's been happening for the last two years. Uh, now, Bunsell also confirmed he did delete his Twitter account. He noted he hasn't tweeted for two years and he deleted all of his social media because he doesn't use it. Guys. I'm sure he's got other things to do, Meg. <laughs> Thank you. Meg Terrell um, addressing this. You know, S Steve Weiss, it's funny what Twitter gets its wrapped up into. But this is one of these things. The bigger concern, I think, for investors is what Jared Holtz had mentioned. That is what happens to Moderna in a post-COVID world. Well, you know, that is, that is the story. But right now in the COVID world, they sold over $18 billion worth of vaccines for this year, 2022. But those stocks have all come down for the same reasons. And for, in fact, uh, you know, I'm going to correct you a little bit. Uh, when you take a, look, take a look at Novavax, that stock's down from 300. So it's not just Moderna. On Moderna, I continue to be hedged, which means that I'm short calls and I'm long puts. And that's been the case for months and months. Now, post-vaccine world, well, I still believe that it'll turn out to be the most valuable healthcare company out there because they've got a platform that's grown from just about 21 therapeutics and vaccines a year or so ago. So over 40 now, and we've seen the promise on it. So I wouldn't say it's been completely de-risked. No biotech, no pharma company ever is, but the future's extremely bright. But like any other company like this in biotech, it's event-driven. When events aren't going to happen near term, then the shorts come in and the sellers get impatient because they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they own, and they sell it. And as far as uh, Stefan's insider selling, Take a look at what he owns. He's going to have to live to be 150 to sell all his stock through 10B5. He still owns over 5 million shares, close to 6 directly and indirectly, owns more than 7 million shares. So he's still perhaps the largest shareholder in the company, and that's not going to change anytime soon. If he had open market sales of a billion here, a billionaire, that'd be a different story. But that's not the case. It's prudent for him to pare down his exposure. Yep. Ahead on halftime, the ETFs to watch today, plus trades on the key earnings this week, plus all February. CNBC is celebrating Black History Month. Here is, excuse me, Black History. Here's CNBC contributor Jason Snipe with what he believes we can all do to change the financial future for the black community. The most important thing we can do to change the financial future for African Americans is to expose us. We need to be exposed to all the industries that are out here. Experience is our greatest teacher. We cannot be what we cannot see.
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland. Wall Street's climbing a wall of worry on top of mounting fears over runaway inflation and a dramatically more hawkish Fed Plus, geopolitical tensions are adding a whole new layer of macro uncertainty to the mix for the global markets. In a flight to safety, gold prices shot up to their highest levels we've seen since just before Thanksgiving, while crude prices are hovering right around seven-year highs. Commodity ETFs suffered net redemptions back in 2021, but they've already racked up more than $6 billion in inflows this year. So how does this latest turmoil factor into the commodities equation? Joining us now is Tom Lydon, CEO of ETF Trends along with John Davey, founder and CIO of Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Tom, I'm going to kick it off with you. ETFs are still on pace to hit over $700 billion in 2022. Pretty tough to top the record year we had back in 2021. But why do inflows into equity funds still continue unabated despite all the uncertainty out there? You're right, Frank. I mean, it's going to be tough to beat that trillion dollars that we saw last year. And even with Hints of inflation that are getting stronger and stronger and a, a, a rise in interest rates in many cases that we're going to see over the course of this year, equities continue to be favorable for investors. We've seen net redemptions in fixed income ETFs, but surprisingly, we're seeing almost as many buyers in domestic equity ETFs as we're seeing in international ETFs. I think a lot of folks are looking at the valuation opportunities there. And, and rising rates aren't as affecting investors overseas as they, as they are in the U.S. And you mentioned commodities. Yes, commodities have been on fire. Gold has actually been an underperformer compared to other commodities. When you look at food, agriculture, energy, housing, rates are increasing. We're seeing inflation across the board. It cost 17 bucks to get a beer at the Super Bowl yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it's not holding back at any time soon. Those are some first-class problems, though, buying a beer at the Super Bowl. John, over to you. How should investors cope with all this elevated risk? Well, I think you want to have commodities in your portfolio. I mean, commodities serve a couple of different attributes. A, they're a hedge against inflation. So S&P is down 7% year-to-date. Bonds are down about 3 4%. You know, you see tickers like PDBC or BCI. These are broad-based commodity ETFs that are up 
you know, 10, 11 percent. So they're hedge against inflation. We know that. It's just that we hadn't had inflation in the last 10 years. So investors didn't really need to look at commodities. But that's starting to change. There's two other things that I think are very interesting that commodities provide in the portfolio. A, they're hedge against geopolitical risk. So you get Russia, Ukraine tensions. What, what do you see happen? You see stocks go down like they did on Friday. S&P fell 2 percent. Today in Europe, European stocks were very weak. But what do you see? You see commodities like gold and oil rally. Okay, so the the wonky term is that they have positive skewness, right? So you have the ability to go up when you have geopolitical risk. Stocks have negative skewness. So you want to own those in a diversified portfolio. The last interesting thing is that commodities actually now giving you like a net uh, positive carry to kind of own it. So the way the futures are rolling, you're actually getting paid to own commodities, and that's very different from the last ten years. So I look at tickers like PDBC, BCI, Combi. These are all, you know, okay. broader based commodity ETFs. All right, John, we've got to leave it there. Um, we're going to have much more on the ETF flow down, where the money is actually going. That's coming up uh, on ETF Edge. Plus, we're going to pick up an uh, inflation story reopening and picking up steam. And Tom and John, they're going to be joined by Wendy Wong from New York Life Investments to talk about a different flavor of ESG. Healthy Heart Investing. That's all ahead at 1 p.m. Eastern on ETFedge.cnbc.com. And Halftime is back right after this. Coinbase is rallying. It's a bouncing QR code Super Bowl ad was so popular it crashed the app. Joe, you owned it. Looks like the ad worked. Mm, 20 million hits, I think, in one minute. The reasoning behind owning it really was not fundamental. It was more of a technical trade. Got a nice bounce in crypto assets so far month to date. They're up about 10%. So this is more a second derivative trade. Last Monday, uh, I offered to the viewers a potential trade where you basically were entering right here where the stock price is. Relatively low risk stop down below at 187 and a quarter. That would be your out uh, where you ultimately would be wrong. I think they're going to report earnings here coming up at the end of the month. So uh, I did the trade along with the viewers. I'm still in the trade right now, following along. And uh, we'll, we'll see where earnings takes us. And hopefully the machine doesn't stop me out. <laughs> All right. Big week of earnings here on deck with Cisco Systems set to report on Wednesday. Also, the Wall Street Journal reporting the company is offering more than $20 billion for Splunk. Jenny, would you like this deal? And what are you listening for at, out of the report? So those are two totally separate things. Yes. Our thought on the Splunk deal is, look, if we don't own it in the portfolio, if we don't want to buy Splunk, then we don't really want to own it as part of Cisco. But we're not activist investors, and we do trust management. So if Chuck Robbins, the CEO of Cisco, thinks that this is a good deal, then he knows more than we do, and we trust in that. That's one part. So we'll see where that goes, right? Um, separately, when they report earnings, it's probably going to be a really solid quarter. I don't expect any fireworks. I don't expect any negative surprises. I think this is exactly the kind of company that you want to own in this environment. Trades at 15 times earnings right now. Expectations are for 6 to 8% earnings growth over the next few years. That's achievable. It's logical. It's you know, it's practical. That's where you want to be. And as we continue to get through the pandemic, as as People are both working from home and working from the office. The demands for networking are, are higher and higher. So I think, you know, it's just it's just where you want to be. I don't think you'll get blown up, but I don't think you'll like shoot to the moon either. All right. The committee is ready to answer your questions. Next, email us at askhalftime at CNBC.com. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned.
The Investment Committee is answering your questions. Mark in Virginia wants some long-term dividend stock picks. Degas, can you hook them up? Yes, Chenier Energy Partners. It has a dividend yield of approximately 6%, and it's focused on natural gas. This is a much cleaner burning fuel. It's in demand in Europe and Asia, and the growth is really going to come from Asia. So this is a company long-term. It's hedged its price, so it's a very good company you can hold long-term. Jenny, what do you say? Okay, Verizon. It's kind of boring, but you wanted long-term, so the spicier stuff is shorter-term. Here you've got a 4.8% dividend yield, trading at eight times earnings. It's a logical valuation. Earnings should grow in the mid to low single digits range. That's achievable. Um, And you've got really low economic sensitivity. So whatever goes on with interest rates, whatever goes on with Russia, Ukraine, it doesn't matter. Verizon's just fine. Joseph, what's your favorite? Abvi. Abv, uh, dividend yield of right a little bit less than 4%. The dividend growth over the last three years has been 10%, a very low beta relative to the S&P at 0.82. Um, Stephen Weiss, I don't want the audience out there to think that I'm snubbing you, because that could be the case in another instance. <laughs> Not this one, though. You didn't and, have and, one. Is that because you do justifiable. <laughs> always justifiable. Do you just not have one in your portfolio right now, or is this not an investing style that you like? You know, it's not an investing style that I like. I've seen too many people go into dividend, high dividend-bearing stocks and get that 5% while the stock declines by 50%. So I'm going to defer to Jenny because she picks the quality dividend plays that also have the fundamentals. And I think that's the way you have to do it. In terms of my portfolio, actually, when they pay dividends, it's really secondary to what I'm doing because I'm strictly bottoms up looking at the fundamentals and targeting stock price I think you can achieve. All right. Final trade still ahead so on the I- Halftime Report. Back in two. Mr. Show, don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. A growing number of small business owners say they are passing higher costs on to their customers. The latest CNBC SurveyMonkey small business survey finds 47% of small business owners are raising prices up eight points from the fourth quarter. Another 32% say they will have to raise prices if inflation persists. And most think it will persist. 75% say inflation will still be a problem six months from now. And only 28% have confidence in the Fed's ability to tame it. More on the survey is at CNBC.com. Final trades are next on the Halftime Report. Time to hit a couple of street calls. Jenny, Disney added to Bank of America's US-1 list, had a buy rating and a $191 price target on this stock. What do you think? We think they're right in line. So when we bought this, not last summer, but the summer before, our theory was that parks would rebound really strongly International tourists would come back, tourism would come back, and eventually Disney would get to about $10 of earnings. You put a 20 times multiple on it, we thought it would be a $200 stock. So it's neat to see that they're right in line with that thinking. Um, I don't know how long it takes. Obviously, it's slower than we expected, but it's definitely heading in the right direction. Parks killed it this quarter. It was awesome. Uh, Tex, in the meantime, getting a downgrade to a market perform from outperform over at Raymond James. Degas? I don't agree. I, uh, the uh, Texas instrument has a very diverse 
chip maker. It goes everything from industrials to internet of everything to automobiles. We feel that this company has very good profitability, good valuation at these levels, and growth uh, going forward. So we don't agree with that call. All right, final trade time. Joe Terranova, kick it off. I'm going to stay with the Tesla of farming, and that's John Deere. They're reporting earnings this week. Autonomous tractors, Melissa, they're coming. Get yourself one. <laughs> if I had land. Stephen Weiss. <laughs> Volkswagen, every time it hits the 27 level, the stock bounces. They may have the big announcement on separating Porsche from, the, from Volkswagen towards the end of March when they give their annual update. Degas. General Mills, we like it because of strong demand for breakfast cereals, bacon products, and pet food. Jenny. Okay, so far I've been wrong, but Lumen right now, if you were to look at it on a private market value, the company should be up dramatically, maybe twice what it's trading at now. It's got a 10% dividend yield, which we think is sustainable. Management's standing behind it. All right, that does it for us today for the Halftime Report. See you back here tomorrow. Meantime, the exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.